Makwe, let's start out in the West African nation of Ghana. 17th, uh, I guess, a turn to the International Monetary Fund. And uh, it seems uh, they're confronted with somewhat of a balance of payments crisis. What's happening there? Yeah, you know, the guys had to unfortunately reverse their position. It was a difficult position because the guys made the position that they won't be going there. But the fact that Moody's, you know, cut their rates, and then that made it very difficult for guys to start uh, uh, having access to overseas capital markets and hence their inability to get the needed dollar, which, as you said, created balance of payments uh, problems and a possible run-down on their reserves. I mean, we just look at their reserves. I mean, at some point, their reserves were sitting at almost $138 billion. That was by end of April. And now, uh, down from the $152 billion of last year, just shows you that those reserves are gradually going down. The guys just have to come with a plan. And in this instance, the guys may seek a $1.5 billion loan coming from the IMF. And I mean, just talk to me, I guess, about how a balance of payments crisis emerges here from a ratings downgrade. Because, um, you know, the finance minister in Ghana is saying, look, since we were downgraded, it's effectively, you know, had an adverse implication on our ability to access capital markets. And that's, you know, after a series of other developments led to a balance of payment crisis that has them knocking on the Bretton Woods institution's door. Financial payments generally have to make payments, you know, to uh, uh, foreigners, stuff like that. And then they decide they call it a balance of payment. But how do you make that payment? You make that payment by accessing capital from the capital markets. But now if you've been downgraded, then it becomes very expensive for you to, number one, be able to get that capital. Number two, other guys don't even want to touch you because their main data doesn't allow you, doesn't allow to them to at least start doing business with somebody who's been downgraded. So it's almost kind of a double way. Mm. It's either those who are prepared to help you, they'll charge you very high interest rates, and the other ones might be say, unfortunately, it's a no-no. I mean, just look at the inflation sitting at almost, what is it, almost 27.6%, and the interest rate had to be hiked by almost 200 basis points to 19%. Mm. And this is not just a small-time player. I mean, this is the continent's second biggest cocoa and gold producer but what i find very interesting apparently the guys were also encouraged you know by what you call the talks with imf earlier this year with egypt mm. that encouraged the north american countries to sell some more ripons higher these are very clever this is a very clever of the money because this is a yen dominated bond issued in Tokyo by a non Japanese company and subject to Japanese regulation, but they're non guaranteed and they're not listed. Mm. So even the government itself they don't carry that on their balance sheet. So in a way that will help them to a certain extent, but they've just acknowledged that to get out of the situation, they just have to go to the IMF and try to get that money. Yeah. But, Makwe, I guess a lot of the sort of uh, overtures to the IMF also play into a very particular political context. You know, yeah. the president there, um, you know, uh, Nana Akufo Addo, uh, when he was campaigning in 2017, uh, was quite, you know, vehement in his view, mm-hmm. um, this idea of Ghana beyond aid. Um, mm-hmm. We're not going to go to the IMF. Um, and there was reason for that, because in 2015, his predecessor, President John Mahama, um, had gone to the IMF, I think they got a 918 million US dollar loan. 
yeah. and the conditions of that were very politically unpopular. Uh, it meant, you know, a freezing on salary growth in the public service, you know, ending of oil subsidies, um, which effectively serve as a cushion and probably would be a very good cushion now. I mean, what's the political context looking like and what might potentially the conditions be of this 1.5 billion US dollars, if indeed they get it? Uh, yeah, you know, apparently the Ghana, Ghana will propose their own program to the IMF and the plan is, uh, what do you call it, a minimum of three years we will aim to restore debt sustainability and microeconomic stability mm. just to cause the uh, By doing that, you're not doing IMF or anyone a favor. You're just doing our economy a favor to make sure that your debt is sustainable and to make sure that your microeconomic issues are stable and also to strengthen the central bank monetary policy. I, uh, what is an F or World Bank or whoever is a lender, I think this is what any country should be doing. Let's put aside an F and they have to build buffers against economic shocks. Mm, mm. Whether is that the condition put by MF or World Bank or by South African lender, I think these are the conditions that you have to impose upon ourselves as an economy to make sure that you've got the buffers like that, you've got microeconomic stability. But we know the narrative when it comes to the likes of MF and World Bank, that they usually come with funny stories, as you said, with the previous loan that more or less you can, it's a way of like, People will say you've sold your sovereignty mm. as a country. Remember, they come here when we're also looking to get money from the IMF during the COVID issues. People were worried that, ooh, here we go, you know, we're going to be controlled by them. But if I look at this, that, that they want to do as a government, I don't think that the IMF or World Bank is mm. This is any way that they need to be doing for a country going forward. But we don't know what other conditions will IMF impose on the guys. But you see, Makwa, what complicates the picture is that last mm. week there were protests, protesting mm. against rising cost of living and uh, much similar, I guess, to what we're starting to see here and mm. in other parts of the world. And, um, you know, if the conditions touch on something like fuel subsidies in that West African nation, um, mm. it's likely to elicit a very particular response and politicians being politicians probably don't want to risk that um, in an electoral year. They have to tread carefully, and hence the guys are saying, listen, we're talking to them. We know our stance. Our stance was not to go to an IMF, but the way things are now, we don't want to be part of Sri Lanka. Remember what happened to Sri Lanka? They had to ask for a build-out from a lender. They don't want to go that route. So what do you do? Maybe come and go and negotiate something which is more suitable between you and IMF to try to get you out of the situation. And yes, you are right. Ideally, we wouldn't like to go to the likes of IMF or World Bank. And ideally, even including us on an individual level, we don't want to go and acquire debt. We just want to try to sustain ourselves with whatever that we are generating. But unfortunately, things turn out in such a way that other things you cannot do them unless you have to acquire some debt. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, that's how the cookie crumbles out there in Accra. We're going to be following quite closely how that unfolds um, over the next while. And as I said, uh, some uh, protest action there accompanying uh, a lot of the uh, pressures and economic hardship that's been visited on many households uh, as a result of uh, all of what we're seeing in in the global environment. Uh, Makwe. 
yourselves in the asset management industry have spoken a lot, um, and so too as government, I must add, about um, you know getting um, owners of patient capital in our pension funds to finance infrastructure. It seems the Treasury has given some uh, guidance insofar as this is concerned in the final amendments to Regulation 28 of the Pension Funds Act. Before we get into sort of what they are saying, what what is Regulation 28 of the Pension Funds Act and what does it, I guess, uh, give guidance on? Basically, they regulate how you diversify a certain amount or certain percentage to avoid the concentration into a particular asset class or a particular company that, listen, you cannot have more than 25% in one company, as an mm. example. And then further to that, it just prescribes to us that how much are you allowed to take offshore? Internationally, it was 30% before. Africa, it was 10%. And it also tells you what are the instruments that you are allowed to invest into. The likes of crypto, we know, they're not allowed at all. But now they've tried to revise some of that. Yes, crypto is still out. So they just made, uh, I'm not sure it's safe to say, some cosmetic changes. Mm, mm. I mean, would you say they're cosmetic? I mean, I'm quite, let's maybe start before we even get into infrastructure. Um, they've made some changes on how much pension funds can invest in private equity. Why? 5%. And by doing that, we are just making sure because we know, number one, we know the number of companies that have been delisting on the JSE. Number two, we've just been allowing guys to take out 30%. And number three, we know. If you want to survive in this investment world, you have to look into alternative investments. Mm. You don't have much of a choice. So there was no way we could still continue to invest without increasing the private equity portion of things. So it just was a natural progression. And then uh, I guess the other dynamic, of course, is insofar as infrastructure is concerned, and some have raised concerns that you know, how you define infrastructure might make it very difficult for you know, asset managers to allocate capital accordingly. So if you're saying, I think as the amendments are suggesting, 45% you know, is the highest you can allocate in your portfolio um, you know, to infrastructure. When we say infrastructure, what do we mean? I mean, if, if I'm a telco and I'm going to put, or as some have been saying, I'm going to list my towers business independently, um, can I put in all 45% in that? Um, and surely if that is the case, that's not the intention because the intention is to get money to deal with the infrastructure funding gap for social and economic infrastructure that we have. You are right, but it qualifies because that's part of infrastructure. And maybe has guess, the noise yeah. that it's kind of too broad, it's kind of too vague. I think they need to redefine that to say infrastructure. You are saying here, people going to go and build a bridge somewhere in the rural areas that needs funding. Whoever that is building that bridge needs to be funded. You are allowed to invest in that. Someone is going to go and build the dam, you know, let alone the roads, you know, then you are allowed to go and do that. And I'm excluding the roads because already Sandra, they're selling their bonds. We've been buying those bonds anyway. So here you are putting projects that people didn't want to touch before. And I think the government needs to be more specific, you know, not to prescribe or to take to us. But as you're saying, you go and invest in some telcos. That's still part of infrastructure. And how many telcos do you have out there? The telcoms are NTMs or Vodacoms. So it's easy, you know, to close your 45% on that side. But I think the whole idea 
the government tried to move away from having what we call prescribed assets to try to at least encourage, encourage us by allowing the legislation to allow pension funds to invest in infrastructure pro- projects. But I think they might have missed it there by not defining it more properly. But these are the kind of projects they're talking about. But still, Aya, we will only invest in projects that, at the end of the day, will give the owners of capital, which are the pensioners and the workers, a good return. Hence, I give an example of the likes of Sandra. People have been buying those bonds. The likes of ESCOM. ESCOM bonds people are buying them because they are guaranteed. We know that you can make noise and say ESCOM has got huge debt, but as an investor, I'm guaranteed that ESCOM will pay me my money because if not, the big brother is standing behind them, then they'll give me the money. So my point is, as long as a project makes economic sense, mm. they're going to give us good returns, then definitely we will invest them. It's not a nice thing to say, but it's a harsh reality. Yeah. Investors yeah. don't look at the social impact of things. They consider that, but more importantly, that social impact investing must still give us good returns. Mm. Because how am I going to account? the owner of capital, which is a worker or a pensioner. But sorry, we had to invest into this. It was good socially, but unfortunately, we couldn't make the returns. You know, Makwe, I think the point you're making is is very important. Um, even though people are talking about ESG and so on, but even in a context where you are chasing social returns, there is the responsibility to properly prepare, package, and execute on projects. And I'm quite interested, you know, you you folks in the asset management industry, your own assessment of the institutional mix of entities, of, you know, bureaucrats and so on, who are charged at multiple levels. I mean, it might be in our SOCs, might be in our municipalities. And I mention those two because they spend the most uh, insofar as, you know, capital spending on infrastructure is concerned. Where are you seeing the concerns insofar as the packaging of projects, um, you know, uh, uh, is concerned? Because I think many, you know, of your counterparts in the pension fund industry have said, you know, the money is there, but there's no pipeline, Um, which comes back to the same question. Are we packaging projects, preparing them and making them investment ready or bankable for yourselves in the pension fund industry? Initially, the guys were not doing that. And because the intention was not to really attract that kind of money coming from the pension funds. But with this new regulation coming to effect in January, I think the way guys start to package things has to talk to us to say, listen, mm. this is what we offer you. This is the cash flows that are being projected. This is our IRR. You know, stuff that we like to see in a project. And I'm giving them a benefit of a doubt because I, they are looking for the money. And as you said, the money is available. So they have to package it in such a way that it starts talking to us. And yes, it might not happen or happen over 12 months, but I think over a period of time, it will happen. Mm. And the critical thing, I, it is, we're not going to say it loud, but the critical thing will be, what are my returns in this whole thing? I hear you. People need to order there. People need to them. I hear and understand that. But what are my returns here? Because mm. if there are no good returns, then you might as well get the government to do that project 
all by its own, using our taxpayers' money, where the government is not expected to make a return, but expected to get a social return more than anything. But when it involves money, we also have to be accountable, you know, Indeed, indeed, Marco. And, and I think, you know, where, where it might introduce um, a different perspective insofar as packaging and execution on projects, then I think we must welcome that because, you know, there's, there's been massive challenges and issues uh, with some of the project preparation, you know, and uh, processes insofar as our SOCs and municipalities are concerned. Sure. Lastly, man, just, just crypto. I think many people have been saying this. I also saw a story the Financial Times was leading with in the U.S. saying, you know, they... uh, And you've seen a lot of people. I mean, Spike Lee, Jay-Z, you know, Jack Dorsey on Twitter. (laughs) Many people, you know, punting crypto in particular to African-American communities. And it seems with the tanking of crypto prices, uh, the National Treasury might be found to be on the correct side of things here insofar as that risky asset class is concerned. It's just too volatile, you know. And I think up until it gets to a point that... We all understand why is it going up or down or sideways. Then probably people can start looking into it. Because if you look at the noise that gets to move crypto, it's not more of fundamentals. It's just some funny noise that we strictly or we seriously fail to understand that what is moving there. And I think as an individual, it's easy for you to take chances with your money. But if you're interested with pensioners' money or some investors' money, you don't want to get involved in stuff like that. So I'm not ruling it out completely, but I think there's still some serious regulation that needs to be formed around that before people can feel comfortable to play into that space. And remember, even if I give you my money as a pension fund, I have chances are I'll want to sit on the board of that particular institution. I'm an investor. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Let's leave that one for a second. And certainly we're going to... I anticipate that there will be a lot of discussion going forward insofar as uh, those amendments to Reg 28 are concerned and uh, the implications that they have, uh, not just for yourselves as allocators of capital, uh, but also, I guess, uh, the owners of capital themselves, workers, you know, um, you and me and people who put money and uh, just in general, South African savers. Uh, That being said, Mark, I want us uh, to just take a brief look at another story that we saw coming out of the markets. And uh, this is a story of Mara Phones. And uh, we're hoping, I guess, uh, in the next uh, while to have an opportunity to talk about this. Um, they, they were set for a liquidation process not so long ago, based out of the Dubai trade port out at Teguini. Um, and it seems now, Labashe, uh, same Labashe, mm-hmm. that's part of the Takato Consortium, same Labashe of Sunday Times and Business Day, same Labashe of Capitec, yeah, Warren Wheatley um, have now come in alongside uh, the managed buyout team uh, to, uh, I guess, uh, I wouldn't call it saving the day uh, because only time will tell whether or not this uh, is a viable undertaking. What do you make of this? And I guess, uh, why do you feel it was important to save this company? I think for me, it's a nice story. And especially if it gets to be successful. I mean, just number one, I mean, the guys, the Basha guys, they don't have experience with this. But in a way, they are more or less buying the story and breaking the management payout and buyout. And you look at the likes of Sylvester. I mean, the guys know what they've been doing. And I think it's only fair, you know, uh, to try to back them, you know, the likes of Maputo, because they seem to be believing 
in the story when it comes to Mara. And yes, we know it failed after the government put money through the IPC and Standard Bank. But Aya, is it not the right thing to try to do, you know, to try to get something to, to which is African that the guys had to manufacture your iPhones, mm. stuff like that, and try to get them much cheaper. We've been saying, and we've been starting to make this story when it comes to our mining companies, that we just mine things, we send them out, mm. and they come back mm. as finished products. So I don't think there's anything wrong with us trying to capture the whole village. Yeah. And you just go back and look into the market penetration when it comes to smartphones, when it comes to Africa itself, just forget about South Africa. There's a huge way there's a huge market when it comes to that. So I think the guys themselves, they do have a market. And we hope it doesn't turn out to be another aspect where they started manufacturing a vaccine back home here, but people decided not to buy it then, or African countries not buying from our aspen back home here. We hope that African countries will also support the guys back home here. And mm. hopefully they capitalize from that free trade agreement that we have as Africa. But I think it's a nice story, and maybe it's because I'm sold when it comes to the guys who are behind it. Mm. Forget about the guys who are coming with a big check. Sure. I mean, one of the most important things when you look into a company other than the product and cash flow, you also look at management, the whether team, they yeah. know what they're doing. And so far, the two guys, they seem to be knowing what they're doing. You know, it's so interesting, Mark, that you, that you say this, because I think a lot of people might say, ah, well, you know, you guys are being extremely patriotic and, you know, talking up this or the other. But the truth of the matter, and, you know, I was doing some analysis um, late last week just on, on Finland. And mm. Finland is an interesting case because they are the guys who gave us Nokia. And it's so interesting how the capability they built, not just in the electronics, but in all of the incidental sectors, you know, software, battery design, manufacture, and all of that, is now positioning them for some other things. And I think, and I think you know, any investment in electronics in South Africa is going to require this because historically we haven't been a big market uh, or even a big uh, producer of electronics. I mean, aside from rudimentary like consumer electronics back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this might also be an opportunity if we, you know, resource it properly. Um, and, and I think it's good to see the IDC here sticking it out alongside Standard Bank um, mm-hmm. until this stage. And one hopes that, you know, this new operation will be capitalized well enough to rebrand, to repurpose and refocus its operations. Uh, because if indeed we do do that, it's a massive opportunity. It's very interesting, you know, to to position Africa as a world-class manufacturing hub of high-tech products and to locally manufacture affordable, high-quality, and I think people need to understand, it's not just phones, but it's high-quality mobile smart devices. So as I say, there's a lot of spin-offs when it comes to this whole thing, especially from the tech part of things. There'll be some uh, multiplier effect. And then, Makwa, um, I guess, you know, if we, if we think through um, this issue, um, I mean, do we, are we any wise as to what exactly happened here uh, and why we are finding ourselves now having to talk through a, a rescue process and uh, all manner of things here? What happened? When's again, basically? Yeah, apparently, the, guys, the local guys couldn't come with their money, when uh, the CEO pledged to inject 1.5 billion into the project, 
and other shareholders could not raise their total contribution, and the shortfall had to be plugged by Standard Bank and ITC, but also the government promised them that mm. they'll be buying their devices. I don't think it happened, or maybe because the devices from the government side were not yet due for upgrade because you don't just decide and buy, you mm. know, the contracts that they've been signed with other... It was kind of disturbing that it just took out how many months, seven, eight months mm. before the whole thing collapsed. So, yeah, but yeah, as much as it was depressing, but at least here we are. Just it on the money, did did, uh, did uh, Ashish Takar put down the $1.5 billion he promised? Or was it our South African fellows here who who weren't able to put out their money? Naya, he just pledged. Oh, Naya, is that what you Yeah, he pledged to inject. Oh, of course, yeah. Makwe, what's happening on the roads with the trucks? Oh, it's happening, brother. Even in France, that's what they were doing, the runaways. They're just it's closing like, the roads, the roads to Mozambique. Yeah, yeah. Sure. it's not the community only. Even in France, the railway workers also had a strike for the same reason, rising cost of living. And yes, it's not a wise thing to do, but it just shows you the frustration that people are, are, are dealing with mm. day to day. You know, it's not the right thing to do. But and I think the government as well has to take some of the blame. Number one, they've promised us, I don't know how many months back, that they're really looking into the formula of calculating fuel prices. I've not seen anything higher. Hmm. You know, and that thing cannot limit all on government. True that, I agree. But maybe let's try to simplify this. Why are all these things expensive? The ones that we're buying in dollars. Is it not because the rent is weak? Look, it is, man. And why, yeah, I know. And, I why would correct, the rent, yeah. and why would the rent be weak? Well, uh, because of the dollar strength. Yeah, but now, why the Australian dollar is not as weak as the South African rent? I don't know, Mark. Why? It's because our economy is not doing well. It's because we're not doing well as an economy. Hence, we don't have that kind of cushion. Why yeah. so all I'm trying to say is some of this the government has to take some play that they could have probably lessened the blow if the rate was doing much better. Yeah, but Mark, where, I mean maybe about it, yeah. around 1680 now. Yeah, but Mark, where, I mean I think th- here's the other issue and uh, you know it's so interesting. One of these days we must maybe do a recollection of the Rand Commission, two thousand and one or so. Um mm-hmm. because one of the things that are very clear about the RAND um, as an emerging market currency is that, yes, it's very liquid, you know, involved in carry trades and all of that kind of stuff. But the other issue is that it's characteristically volatile. And so, you know, even in instances where we felt that the real economy or even other parts of our economy are doing relatively okay, it's often activities in the you know currency markets that give rise to that. And I think you know, if you ask anybody now, they say, well, a big part of the RAND weakness at the moment, yes, has a lot to do with South African you know, reasons for that, but a big part of it actually has to do with um, what's happening insofar as dollar strength is concerned. I mean, look at how weak the euro is in relation to the dollar at the moment. Yeah, I agree. Let's say it's 50%. That's got to do with us as a country. Oh, yeah, sure. If that's 50%, sure. if it gets to be addressed, you see, we'll have at least lessened the blow by 30%. I just look at your May budget deficit. You're sitting at 17.1 billion from last year's May budget deficit of 5.4 billion. Is that not affecting the rent? Mm. No, no, I mean, but, I think, yeah, you're correct. You know, all I'm saying is 
the government cannot be 110% blamed, but some of the staff the government could have just tried to lessen the blow. Qualitative, 25%, whatever it is, but it could have at least helped to lessen the blow. But yeah, yeah. still, it's not right to take out the frustrations in such a way mm. that you disturb other people. We have to take out our frustrations in a very responsible way and not cause damages sure. or be violent about it. Mark, we're going to have to leave it there for tonight, my brother. Always a pleasure catching up with you. Uh, that there's Makwe Masilela, Chief Investment Officer and Founder at Makwe Fund Managers. And of course, that story there of that uh, trucker, you know, uh, a strike or protest out in Bumalang on the way to uh, Mozambique, uh, following hot on the heels of the story we had yesterday where Transnet uh, Freight Rail had partnered uh, with, uh, I think it was Monday, yeah, partnered with uh, Mozambique Rail. Um, and of course, one of the things they wanted in that partnership is to shift a lot more freight off of the roads and onto the railway networks.